For everyone else, if you would, take your Bibles out with me and turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. We will be finishing chapter 12 today, looking at verses 18 through verse 29 in Hebrews chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible with you, we will have that on the screen for you to read there as well. And uh, if you do not own a Bible, and that's the reason you don't have one with you, uh, then we would encourage you, feel free to grab one of the Bibles that you can find in the backs of the pews. Uh, If you don't have one right in front of you, uh, find one somewhere, but uh, take that as a free gift that we offer to you. We want to make sure that everyone here has uh, a Bible. And so if you don't own one, take that with you as a gift. Um, With that being said, I would ask, please stand with me for the reading of God's word this morning. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of the things that are shaken, that is, the things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be that cannot be shaken may remain therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken and thus let us offer to god acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our god is a consuming fire this is the word of the lord you may be seated let's pray Lord, we come today to this passage, a passage that is beautiful and wholesome and helpful to us, and yet, Lord, it's one that brings such vivid imagery. Lord, I pray that as we study this text, as we read your word this morning and seek to learn from it, Lord, that you would instruct us rightly as to who you are, as to your righteousness and your justice, and also your grace and your mercy that is found in Christ Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. This uh, weather that we have today, this cold spell, uh, reminds me of something that me and uh, my brothers and some friends of ours used to do uh, on, uh, on days near the end of summer, kind of into the fall, or, or sometimes in the beginning of, of summer or near the spring, when we would go to our friend's house who 
who had a pool. They had a really nice pool and a hot tub. And one thing that we always found to be really enjoyable for some strange reason is that on days when it was particularly cool, so beginning of the year, end of the year, when the, when the pool was still open, but uh, it wasn't really necessarily desirable to be in the pool, we would go and, and get in the pool and we would feel the cold and we would, we would get in and just be just really shocked to our core by the cold water in the pool. And then what we would do is after being in the pool for a little bit, we would jump out and run over and hop into the hot tub. And we would do that over and over and over again, just going from the, the bitter cold of the pool to the, the warmth and the, the kind of embrace of that steamy hot tub. And it felt so good. After you had been dipped into this really cold, chilly water to then go and, and get in the hot tub and feel the warmth and feel the comfort that that brings. And by and large, the text that we have before us today is one that reminds me, makes me think in this way, of going from a, a cold dip in a pool to a warm hot tub and feeling the, the warmth of that hot tub on us. And that's because what we have before us today is a text that, as much as any text that I can think of in Scripture, gives us a picture of the distinction between the law and the gospel. The law-gospel distinction is something that we have on display here before us today, and it's a very important distinction to be made. And if you are unfamiliar with this distinction, then I'm happy to explain it for you today. The distinction between the law and the gospel is the distinction between the commands of God, his righteous requirement that he, that he has given us chiefly in the form of the Ten Commandments. The law of God, the standard that has been set by him of righteousness. If anyone were to live a righteous life, it must be in line with these commandments found in the law of God. And the more you begin to think about the law of God and, and consider the commandments, and certainly if you're familiar with your Bible, you'll know full well that not a single one of us in this room can live up to the law of God, which is why it is necessary that we make the distinction between the law and the gospel, the gospel that is delivered, that is the good news of salvation to those who believe, as Paul says in Romans 1.16, the gospel that says that there is one who has come who has fulfilled the law perfectly and by faith in him, because he has died on the cross, taking the punishment that we deserve for breaking the law, we now can be found in him righteous, justified before God, as though we had lived according to the law perfectly, when we know that we have not. Not a single person on earth has. And this is the good news of the gospel that we need. This is a necessary distinction to be made between the law and the gospel, because the law brings commands, it brings a standard, but one that we on our own can never live up to. But the gospel brings salvation, redemption, grace that we so desperately need in Christ Jesus. This is the distinction that we have before us today, especially in the first half of our passage here at the end of Hebrews 12. We are given this distinction in our passage, and we're given it in the form of two mountains. Two mountains are presented for us today in Hebrews chapter, chapter 12, 18 
through 29. And I want us to consider these mountains and the kingdom that follows as well as we study today. So the first mountain that we come to, starting in verse 18, is the mountain known as Mount Sinai. This is, if you will, the, the cool water, the pool that we are immersed into first, the cool water of the law that is presented. We see in verse 18 and 19, the author says, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them. There is an assumption made here on the part of the author. There's an assumption made that his readers will understand the picture that he is drawing for them. Because the author here, the Holy Spirit, by means of the writer, is describing an event in the history of the readers of this letter, in Jewish history, and his expectation is that they will recognize the event he's describing. And certainly it's undeniable that they would. And we know that he's assuming a specific event that he's discussing here when we see this by the way he carries on in verse 20 when he says for they could not endure the order that was given they being the children of Israel he goes on if even a beast touches the mountain it shall be stoned indeed so terrifying was the sight that Moses said I tremble with fear here we see that the clear and undeniable event that's being described here is the event recorded for us in Exodus 19 and 20. It was indeed the time at Mount Sinai when God came down to earth, came down to deliver the law to his people through Moses. And this was indeed a terrible and frightening event. You can see from the language of our our text here today, that this event when God came down to Mount Sinai is not one that was, that was beautiful and, a, and, and one that people wanted to see and wanted to be there for. No, quite the opposite. What we see here is that this was an event that was terrifying and brought fear and trembling and gloom. When the Holy Spirit says in verse 18 as he begins this section that you have not come to what may be touched he's not talking about something that you have permission to touch but simply making the point that it was a physical mountain where the lord came down to meet man and spoke indeed certainly it was not an allowance and not permission that the people had to touch this mountain in fact the exact opposite is true as our text says the command was given not to touch the mountain and that to touch it, whether on the part of a human or even an animal, meant that that person was to be stoned. And if you read back in, in Exodus and in Deuteronomy, you'll see that it says either stoned or shot, that is, shot with an arrow. The reason being that you were not to become defiled by this person who had defiled themselves by breaking this law, by touching the mountain of Sinai or this animal that touched Mount Sinai, but they were to be killed from a distance without ever even touching them. At Mount Sinai, the holiness of God is on full display as he comes with fire, with clouds and lightning and thunder in a tremendous voice and gloom. 
The holiness of God is on full display in Mount Sinai, and it is indeed a terrifying event for the people who are there. John MacArthur about this event at Sinai says, The primary purpose of these signs was to convince the people of the absolute unapproachableness of God. Sinful man could not come near him and live. That is the picture we're given at Mount Sinai. The picture of a God who is unapproachable. One who we have no right to draw near to because we are sinful human beings. And this is a common refrain throughout the book of Hebrews. That ever since the fall in Genesis 3, access to God has been denied. It has been cut off. It has been not allowed. It has been barred. We see this in the case of Adam and Eve who after they sinned against God and and that fellowship, that communion with the Lord was broken. They were removed from the garden, removed from access to God's presence and an angel was placed in the way to guard it so that they might never enter again. We see the same through the, the tabernacle and the temple throughout the history of Israel where it was only the Great, it was only the high priest and only once a year who was able to enter into the presence of God. But for the rest of the people, the presence of God was cut off. It was denied. It was barred to them. Access to God ever since Genesis 3 has been denied to human beings. It has been denied to them. And I'll tell you what can be found at, at Mount Sinai What can be found at Mount Sinai is God's justice on display, God's holiness on display, God's commands, his law being given. But the one thing you know that you will not find at Mount Sinai is salvation. Salvation for the people of God was not found at Mount Sinai. The law was given. God's justice and his righteousness and his holiness was on full display And yet the one thing that is not delivered at Mount Sinai is salvation. What I mean to say by this is that the law, which is signified by by Mount Sinai, cannot save anyone. No one is saved by the law. Galatians 3, 10 and 11 tells us this. Paul says in Galatians, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. That is to say, by the law, justification cannot be found, because we can never live up to the law. If we would seek to find our standing before God, be declared righteous before God by the law, then what is necessary is that we live up to every single standard that the law sets. And that is impossible. Not a one of us has done that even for a moment. Been able to stand up to the perfect righteousness that is expected in the law. Salvation, justification before God was never given in Mount Sinai. And it was never intended to be found there. God's intention in giving the law was not to give a way of salvation. But to demonstrate his holiness and his righteousness and his justice. The picture that we're given from Sinai is not one of people rejoicing and running to commune with God at the mountain. Instead, what we see is people trembling in fear. 
who couldn't stand the voice of God and were begging for it to cease. As will still be the case of any who would stand before God without mediation. Specifically the mediation of Jesus Christ. You know, the Bible is very clear that there are really only two ways that we will be judged before God. All people will stand before God in judgment. Not a single person will ever escape it. It's been said that the only things that are sure in this life are death and taxes. And I would include onto that judgment. Each and every person on this life after death will be judged before God. The question is, on what basis will you be judged? You will only be judged on one of two bases. Either you will be judged according to the law, which as we have established, no one wants to be judged according to the law, for there is no hope to be found there. None of us will be found righteous according to the law. Or you will be judged according to Christ's righteousness imputed to you. It's one or the other. And as we see from Mount Sinai, the law that was given, this is not the place that we go to find justification, to go to be forgiven of our sin, to go to find salvation. And if all we were given in Scripture is the picture of Mount Sinai, then we would indeed be left in despair. We would be left hopeless. But that's not all we have. In fact, there is another mountain that the Holy Spirit now turns our attention to in verse 22. And that is Mount Sinai. Let's read verse 22 and 23. After giving this picture of what the Lord did and, and the fire and the darkness and the gloom and the tempest of Mount Sinai, the author turns our attention, says in verse 22, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Now we remove ourselves as the author, as the Holy Spirit leads us, we remove ourselves from the cold of the pool into the warmth of the hot tub, into the warmth of the gospel. Mount Zion is presented here, and it is presented in contrast to the mountain that the children of Israel were brought to at Sinai. This mountain is not a physical one, one that may be touched, but a heavenly one. The city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, this refers to the very heavenly dwelling place of God as he speaks to us, not from a physical location, but from his heavenly throne. This mountain to which we have come is a much more beautiful picture than that of Mount Sinai. Just consider the contrast that is given for us. Mount Sinai was an earthly physical mountain, while Mount Zion is a holy and spiritual mountain. At Mount Sinai, there was fire and darkness. At Mount Zion, there were myriads of angels in rejoicing, in celebration. At Mount Sinai, there is gloom and a tempest. At Mount Zion, there is peace and unity among believers. At Mount Sinai, the people trembled. But at Mount Zion, the righteous are made perfect. The contrast between these two mountains is vast and is great. This contrast is so striking because Mount Sinai presents the law while Mount Zion represents the gospel. This is the law-gospel distinction on display for us here today. 
the distinction between Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. It is the law gospel distinction, and it is the gospel by which we are saved from the wrath of God, the very wrath of God that is due all who have disobeyed the law that was given at Sinai, which is all of us. Every single one of us has disobeyed the law of God at Sinai. And every single one of us, by way of the gospel, can find forgiveness and grace and mercy. Those who have come to Zion, excuse me, it is at Mount Zion where we find the mediator that we need, as we see in verse 24 and following. He says, you have come to Zion, and then in verse 24 he says, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Here the author gets to the reason why Zion is so great and why salvation is found here, not at Sinai. It is at Mount Zion where we find the mediator we need. This was the thing that was most lacking at Mount Sinai when the law was given. The exposure to the presence and holiness and power of God is not something that human beings can endure in the sinful state that we are in. Therefore, what is it that we need? We need a mediator, one who can come into the presence of God and rightfully intercede for us. And those who have come to Zion have come to Jesus, the one who mediates between us and the Father and does so by his blood. Indeed, Christ's shed blood is for us the means of hope and comfort, for it is the means of the fulfillment of the covenant of grace. By his blood, the gospel is made effective for us. By his blood, we are cleansed and healed. That is why his blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. This is an interesting phrase that the author uses here, the, the blood of Christ that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And there are some kind of dispute between what this means, whether or not this is a reference to the sacrifices that Abel made, those of the animal sacrifice of the shedding of blood. Certainly there was blood involved in the sacrifice that Abel made. But I can't read this, and, and along with other commentators, think that this doesn't harken back to when, after Cain had committed this grievous act and murdered his brother, and the Lord came and, and said to Cain, your brother's blood cries out from the ground. You see, the blood of Abel had something to say, but it was not a beautiful message. What is the word that the blood of Abel spoke from the ground after his brother murdered him? His blood cried out for vengeance. His blood cried out a message of injustice, of cruelty, of wickedness that was now present in the world. His blood cried out of a curse, of a brokenness that is now ours because of the sin of Adam. His blood spoke that of curses and vengeance and injustice. And what is the word that the blood of Christ speaks to us today? Well, the New Testament has no shortage of information on this subject. We could go text after text after text, and so we will. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13, But now in Jesus Christ, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 
1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. You were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as gold or silver, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. You've been ransomed. Revelation 1.5, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Romans 5.9, since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. We are justified by the blood of Christ. Hebrews 9, verses 12 through 14, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the sprinkling of the defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through eternal the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish or spot to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Church family, what we see all throughout the New Testament is the word, the better word that the blood of Christ is speaking. We see that the blood of Christ indeed speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. It speaks a word of peace, a word of reconciliation between us and the Father, and between one another. It speaks of eternal redemption, not a temporary salvation found only here on this earth, but eternal salvation, eternal redemption. It speaks of the reversal of the curse that resulted in the death of Abel as his blood cried out of a curse of brokenness. The blood of Christ cries out the reversal of that very curse. Christ's blood speaks the word of the new covenant and the greatness of Zion. The greatness of Zion over Mount Sinai. His blood speaks and his blood beckons us. Come, come to the cross. Come to Jesus Christ and in him find reconciliation. Reconciliation before God, justification, redemption. Peace is found at the cross. Peace for all those who see Mount Sinai and see their wickedness and see their utter hopelessness that they are to make it to the Lord on their own. Christ's blood beckons us. Don't go to Mount Sinai for hope. Don't go to Mount Sinai for salvation for there is none to be found there. Come to Mount Zion. Come to Christ. Come to the cross. Come to a kingdom that cannot be shaken which brings us to point number three, the unshakable kingdom. We read in verse 25 through 27, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet one more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. This kingdom, Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, 
is a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Why? Because it is a spiritual kingdom. It is not a kingdom that has been made. It is not a kingdom that is of this earth, but one that is spiritual and heavenly and holy. Certainly, any, there are many things in this world that this text refers to that are going to be shaken and going to be removed. There are many things that we could point to that are going to be removed as the earth and the heavens are shaken. But as the context of our passage makes clear, that even more importantly than any of these other things, it is, the law, it is salvation by works of the law that is going to be removed. For all who would seek to find justification before God in themselves, in what they can do, know this, church family, that they are going to be shaken and removed. Why? Because that is not the kingdom of Zion. That is the kingdom of Sinai. That is the kingdom that can be shaken. The kingdom that will be removed, that will face God's wrath. But that is not the kingdom that we have been called to in Christ Jesus. We have been called to Zion. We have been called to the new Jerusalem, the heavenly kingdom that cannot be shaken. And in that we can take hope and have refuge. God is going to shake the heavens and the earth. And in this shaking of God's judgment, what is going to be thing removed? Things that have been made. But the kingdom of God that we find ourselves in, if we are in Christ Jesus, can never be removed. This is the good news of the gospel in contrast to the law. This is Zion in contrast to Sinai. The gospel in contrast to the law. As we begin to come to a close here, I want us to notice one last thing. The last two verses that we've not gotten to yet. See how the author concludes this section in verse 28 through 29. He says, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer, offer to God acceptable worship. What is a right response to the, the good news of this kingdom that we find ourselves in? The good news of the gospel. It is worship. It is worship of the God who has granted us this. And it is worship that is acceptable to him. Which is why the author then goes on to say these last words of this kind of worship that is acceptable to God. He says, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. This seems like a strange way to end this passage as he has just expounded on Zion and the, the goodness of the gospel that is found at Mount Zion rather than the law that is found at Mount Sinai. Because this last line in verse 29, our God is a consuming fire, sounds a lot like Sinai language, doesn't it? We might think to the author, why are you talking in this way? This is, this is not Zion language, this is Sinai language. That is the God that the people saw at Sinai, who is the, the God who is a consuming fire, not the God of Zion. But what the author would have us to see as we Read this last phrase in our passage. That the God of Sinai is the same God that we find at Mount Zion. The God that delivered the law to the people of Israel is the same God who has delivered the gospel to us in Christ Jesus. And it is wrong of us, inappropriate of us, in fact, sinful and wicked of us to fail to see this. And arguably, 
Our worship will not be good and proper and right worship acceptable to God if we fail to see that the God of Sinai is the God who has saved us. The same God who delivered the law has delivered the gospel also. This same God, even the God that we now come to and are able to approach, come into his very throne room through the mediation of Jesus Christ, he is a consuming fire. He is the God who, when he came down to Mount Sinai, brought with him flashes of lightning and fire and thunder and clouds and gloom and darkness. And church family, his holiness has not diminished an ounce. His justice has not diminished an ounce to this day. And let me encourage you, if you are going to see the gospel of Jesus Christ truly and rightly, you have to see it in contrast to the law of God. The contra- in contrast, in the backdrop of the holiness of God. The only way that we can truly appreciate and worship God rightly is if we recognize His holiness and His righteousness and His justice. For that is what makes the gospel so sweet. That this God who is this holy and unapproachable is the God that we have now been granted access to. We have now been given permission and, in fact, encouraged to commune with. But we do not do so forgetting His holiness, but always remembering it. And we offer Him our worship with reverence and awe, remembering that our God is a consuming fire. It is the law of God representing His holiness and His justice that is the cool dip in the pool that makes the warmth of the hot tub so sweet. In the book Pilgrim's Progress, you might have noticed I referenced this book a few weeks ago. Well, that's because me and some other guys are are reading through this book right now in our book club. And uh, I have never read the Pilgrim's Progress before, believe it or not. Number one, second to the Bible uh, in best-selling books. It is the second best-selling book of all time. Uh, And I have never read this book. And and I would think there's probably a large number of you in here who have never read it either, and I would encourage you, uh, take up and read the book, Pilgrim's Progress. For page after page after page, it gives us pictures of the gospel. And one of the most amazing pictures that, that stood out to me this last week as I was reading is the picture of the law and the gospel as, as pilgrim, as Christian, as being brought through this house led by this guy interpreter. He's brought into this room this room that is covered in dirt and, and clearly has not been cleaned for a long, long time. An interpreter, the guide who is taking Christian through, commands that the room be swept and a broom is brought in and the room is swept. And as the room is swept, if you've ever swept a, a dusty room with little ventilation, you'll know what happened next. The dust was kicked up into a cloud. It was stirred. It was agitated to the point that Christian nearly choked on the dust as it was thrown around by the broom. And after this was done, the man commanded that water be brought in and that the floor be cleansed with water. And as the water was poured out on the floor and and cleansed, it was quickly and, and it was pleasurably taken up and cleaned by the water. And John Bunyan makes the point that what is represented here is the distinction between the law and the gospel. That is, the room represents the human heart in the condition that we are in because of original sin, that we are filthy, that we are dirty. And when the law comes in, the law comes in 
and agitates our sin, agitates, brings into a cloud, into reality, and makes it ever-present just how sinful and wicked we are and how in need of cleansing we are. And yet we know that that broom of the law could never cleanse that room. The law could never make right a sinful heart. All it can do is just demonstrate for us how sinful and wicked it is. And the water that was brought in, which represents the gospel, is that which can, which can truly cleanse the human heart. Only the gospel can cleanse the human heart. And yet the law still serves a purpose. It is still necessary for us to see our sinfulness in light of the holiness of God. But the law can never be what saves us. It is the voice spoken at Mount Sinai that makes the word spoken by the blood of Christ so sweet to its hearers. The word that says, come, find peace, find joy, find reconciliation, find eternal redemption here at Mount Zion, rather than the wrath that is to come at Mount Sinai. Church family, that is the good news of the gospel in a nutshell, if there ever was one. The good news that by works of the law, no one is saved, only through the gospel of Jesus Christ and his shed, and his shed blood. And for anyone in here today who does not realize this, anyone in here today who is relying on anything other than the blood of Christ to forgive them of their sin and to make them right before God, you are going to be left to be judged before God according to the law. And that is not the place you want to be. Each and every one of us has fallen short of the law. Each and every one of us has sinned and deserves God's wrath. Because we've broken the law. We have sinned against a holy and just God. But by the blood of Christ, we can find forgiveness, cleansing. So I would encourage you, listen to the blood of Christ. Listen to his voice as he speaks and says, come and find peace and rest for your soul. Let's pray.